Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. I think it's reasonable to, to say that Mark and I, between us, have read a lot of rock memoirs, haven't we, Mark? Okay. And, um, and they increasingly pretend to a candor that they very often don't quite deliver on. Yes? And the press release always says that they finally spilt the beans and revealed all, the <laughs> yeah. naked truth. And it's never strictly... You yeah, go, where are the beans? You know, you're halfway yeah. through. And, but, but this yeah. is different, isn't it? Yeah. And so when Mark and I were both reading this and we were texting each other going, have you got to the bit? Have you got to page 97? This is phenomenal. <laughs> it really is like that. It's an extraordinary... And just to give you an idea, one of my favourite lines is quite early in the book. It's, it's from... It's, it's, uh, from the author's father, it says, I remember standing in the kitchen at Coombe Avenue with my dad and him saying, if you join a rock and roll band, son, you'll end up an alcoholic, a drug addict and skint. And as it turned out, he was absolutely right. <laughs> so God bless, Dad. Please welcome Chris Difford. Good evening. This is Deptford in the it's, 1950s. It's subtitled My Life In and Out of Squeeze. Yes, so it, it starts out of squeeze, Yeah, obviously, mm. in Deptford. Tell us about the Deptford you remember growing up. Well, this part of Deptford, um, well, all I can remember about it is being a skinhead and getting the bus down to the reggae record shop, which is just down the corner here, with a friend of mine, Chrissy Myers. And Chrissy Myers used to collect reggae and ska rec- records. He had a fantastic collection. And then we go back to his flat, and uh, we'd dance. And uh, we were about 14 or 15. And two, blokes. Two, two blokes. Two young blokes. Two gay blokes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, so much for no liberation no, in no. Deadford. It was all happening. It was all happening, yeah. <laughs> but no, we, we, we were getting in, in, the, uh, in the socket for Sunday night at the uh, Savoy Club in Catford, which is where we'd really let our, let our dancing take shape. And uh, there was one memorable night where I won a dance competition with my girlfriend, Karen, and it was judged by Desmond Decker. Very good. <laughs> Very good. What, did you get a prize? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. I think when I went back on the dance floor, loads of girls suddenly wanted to dance with, with me, which was great, but it caused a fight. Because uh, uh, Karen wasn't very pleased. Right, right. Mm. But it's fair to say that your your kind of the background of where you came from has played a, a big part in your in your songwriting and everything throughout your career. Um, yeah, I guess so. I mean, my lyrical journey started very much on the streets of Greenwich and Def- Deptford. Um, I didn't know that at the time. I was just ob- observing. And you were writing stuff down? Were you the kind of person who wrote stuff down in exercise books and so forth? Yeah, there's two stories there. Um, I used to write on my exercise books and I'd normally get walloped over the head by particularly a maths teacher called Mr Thorpe who was 70-odd and he couldn't understand while I was writing poems on my book. So I devised uh, 
everybody in the class to sway from side to side very slowly on the count of three. And at the, after about two minutes, he went, oh, no, the room's spinning. Oh, that's brilliant. That's great. That's genius. And he, anyway, he was off sick for about three months. <laughs> That was inspired. And the, the other side of that uh, was I met some skinhead friends of mine about ten years back who I hadn't seen for many years, and they said, oh, it differed. Uh, it's really strange. You know, when we were kids, you used to sit there writing poetry while we were kicking people's heads in. What was all that about? <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, tell us about your mum and dad. Yeah, this is a traditional question on the podcast. Is What was the music that was playing in your house when you grew up? Um, well, my mum being Irish, she played The Bachelors, um, but she she also liked um, Ray Conniff. And I liked Ray Conniff too, because they had one particular sexy album sleeve where a lady was in red tights. And um, she was sitting on a high stool, and uh, during puberty that album sleeve became very important to me. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and, then, and then other sort of music would be Jim Reeves, which I now love. I'd love to do an album of Jim, Jim Reeves songs. Um, so, yeah, it was mainly that. My mum would dance pretty much all the time when she was pissed, and, you know, it was a lo- lovely, lovely thing. My dad, how, how, however, was out at work most of the time. Um, he worked at the local gas company, and, uh, you know, all I can remember is him being tossed out the back of... A van every Tuesday and Thursday night when he'd been to the social club. First, <laughs> first of all, his bike would land on the on the floor, and then he would land on top of top, top of it. <laughs> there's a brilliant story. You're a little bit older than you are on that picture on the right there, but there's a brilliant story where you're working for solicitors and you're a teenager, mm. and on Friday all the um, envelopes arrive with the cash for the for the, the pay packets, and you steal the whole lot. Mm. and then run away and for several days just on a spending spree. I mean, what made you think you were possibly going to get away with that? <laughs> it's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> Check your pockets on the way out, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. I was a bit of a tea leaf, uh, but I was just starting to get into drugs and drugs were kind of uh, affecting the way that I was and... I thought you were going to say expensive. <laughs> yep. <That's right>. yeah. <laughs> Speed wasn't expensive. No. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I was in the office. Everybody had gone home. I looked at the safe. I had the keys, and I went, you know what? And I opened the safe, and there was the tray with everybody's wages in it. And I just, for one mad moment, thought, if I take these home, I can go to London tomorrow and buy the Allman Brothers album. <laughs> yeah. And I can buy Frank's live at live at the film <laughs> Fillmore, and, and, and all these records that I wanted to buy. And I can buy some speed in the local pub and have a great time. Of course, after I did it, I then thought, well, how am I going to call in sick? It's so obvious. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that was it. Tell us about your your mum and dad's relationship, which you write about quite a bit in the book. Mm. Um, Well, my mum was a home bod for many years, and then she decided that she was bored and wanted to get a job. So she got a job at the local police station, in the canteen serving cakes and tea and stuff, which was marvellous for me because after school I would go around there and have my dinner and then being, and I'd get drove, driven home in a police car. <laughs> and once on my estate there was a drugs raid and uh, I got sort of pushed to one side by a couple of coppers and they took me in the car and they drove me up to Blackheath and they just turned around to me and said, your mum's not going to be very impressed about this. And they let me off. Um, so there was a good side to the job that she had. <laughs> I managed to get off a couple of things, as it, as it happens. But there was one member of CID who reminded me of somebody from Z Cars. He was Irish, he was narrow, he was a good-looking guy, and he kept coming around to the house for sort of st- no reason, really. My mum would just drink whiskey with him. They'd giggle a bit. You know, I didn't think much of it. I was 15, 16... And then one time I came, one day I came home, there he is. <laughs> we program these in every quarter now. Just yeah. to, it's the sound of young ears linked to coincide with. Uh, yeah. I came home and there he was sitting on my mum's lap, and I thought, well, this is a bit weird. So I went up to my room. I couldn't process in those days what, what was going on. My mum was hugely embarrassed. I don't know, you know. Anyway, time passed, two weeks passed. 
and then he turns up outside the house with a copy of the Beatles' White, White Album. And he said, Christopher, I think you'd really like this. It's only just come out. And I went, oh, thanks. You know, and then I keyed the side of his car. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next time he came round and he was sitting on my mum's lap, I played number nine really loud upstairs. <laughs> Constantly. Yeah. Is there one incident in the book where you're, you're going north, I think, on a train? Yeah. And your dad gets off the train? Yeah, that was curious. Uh, and didn't reappear It doesn't come weeks. back for a while. No, I'm still in therapy about that one. <laughs> uh, no, we were every year we'd go to Northern Ireland on a, a, on a train and it would stop at Crewe and, you know, it would take on coal or whatever it was in those days. Anyway, he, Dad said, do you want coffees and Kit Kats? He got off the train, he never got back on. But my mum didn't say a word. The fact that he didn't get back on, it was as if it was planned. And the train pulled off and I was looking out the window trying to see what Dad was doing. And then when we got back two weeks later, he was sat in front of the telly, watching football. And nothing was... <laughs> and nothing was said. Nothing <laughs> was said. No, and nothing was ever Amazing. said. Amazing. I mean, that was just... That's what the house was like. Nothing was ever said. I think that's a, that's a theme we're going to return to. Uh, we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, further on. So, oh, this is the, this is the extraordinary uh, message that you put up in the in the new local newsagent, which I shall read out. Actually, it's a guitarist wanted. Uh, must be into the Beatles, Kinks, Small Faces, Lou Reed. Hendrix, Glenn Miller, that's, that's fantastic, <laughs> for band with, uh, is it re- re- recording deal and uh, record touring. deal and touring, yeah. called Chris. And that was the 50p that you stole from your mother's purse that paid for that, that completely <clears throat> changed your life, because Glenn Tilbrook applied. He was, that was the only applicant, wasn't he? He was the only applicant. I was expecting yeah. Richie Black- Blackmore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Alvin Lee. Yeah. But uh, Glenn was the only person to answer the ad, and here we are 45 years later on our 14th <laughs> album, which is an incredible feat in itself. And did, right. he, did, he answer, did he answer the ad personally? Or? It was his girlfriend, Maxine, who called. He was too shy. At least, <coughs> at least that's how I recall and I remember my mum said, Christopher, there's a phone call. And you know, in those days, phones were so important. They were sat on, like, uh, a, a perfectly formed table yeah. that had sort of a corduroy top to it and books underneath. Yeah. And you could sit on the end and take the call. So I ran downstairs and picked her up, and there's Maxine on the end. Yeah, uh, my boyfriend, Glenn, is really interested in joining your band. And I went, oh, dear. I didn't have a band. I just wanted to make some friends. But you talk quite movingly about the effect it has on you when you meet him, because you'd never met anyone like him. He said, he's the most opposite person to me I'd ever met. You know, at parties, he gets up and plays on the table with a guitar, mm. and you're very shy in the corner. And so there's a mutual kind of fascination between the two of you. Yeah, and he's wearing pink trousers and no shoes when you meet him. Yeah, when I first met Glenn and Maxine, it was, as I say in the book, it was like meeting Mary and Joseph and I felt like the donkey <laughs> you know it was, it, was a, it was blissful I could see sunlight behind them and there was love and there was these remember I'd come from a council estate full of thugs and suddenly I meet these two angelic people who drank jas- jasmine tea I'd never heard of jas- jasmine tea they offered it to me and I puked up it was horrible <laughs> but you know it was, it was a real coming to as soon as Glenn started playing the guitar, it was just obvious to me that he was a genius, really. And at parties, he would definitely be like Cliff Richard. He would jump on the table and start playing any song, which he still can do. Um, and I was more like Leonard Cohen sitting in the back trying to chat girls up with poetry. And you wrote about 137 yes. songs. In, it's absolutely it's in a really short, short period, period, of, short time, period of time. One of which was Take Me, I'm Yours, I think. So how did how did, yeah. how did how did you how did you work together? In fact, how did you write? I think at one point, then you put lyrics in the. You're living in the same house, and he's yeah. on the top floor, and you're on the bottom. And you put the lyrics in with the milk. So when he goes down to get his yeah. pint, he picks up the lyrics and goes upstairs and writes the music. Is that right? It was exactly like that. It was like lyri- it was like lyrical snogging, if you like. <laughs> We're just constantly writing songs, and what was fantastic and is still fantastic is to give Glenn a lyric and then see what he comes up with because it's always an inspired journey. You're never quite sure what he's going to do. And um, back in those days, all I could hear was him tinkling away on the piano on the top floor. And then later on in the the day, the song would be formed and I'd go up and listen, listen to it. 
So that was all. You always worked that way around. Yeah, up until the last couple of Squeeze albums, yeah, right. it's been more right. sort of And you couldn't write written. in the same room, is that right? You couldn't, you couldn't be together when the song was being composed. You had to do it separately. Lord, no. It's like masturbation. You don't want to be around. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, this whole... No, not the masturbation. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, the whole question, it is one thing that you keep coming back to in the book, which one of the things I found so pleasing about reading the book is it bore out my theory that I've had for years, that guys in bands don't talk to each other. No. And if there's something important, they certainly don't talk to each other. Well, it's true of every band, I think. There's a... You know, if I... Whenever I've spoken to Roger Daltrey or Pete Townsend, you know, I hear the same stories I hear in my band or have heard in the past. And the same with most bands that I know, there's a relationship. Because when you're young, you want to join a band for a reason. You're all in the same boat, rowing together. You've got the same destination. You know, for us, it was Top of the Pops, Madison Square Garden, all that sort of thing. You just just head off together, and then something happens to the family group. Somebody leaves the band, somebody gets married, somebody has kids, somebody has a drug problem, and then the whole thing falls to bits. There's a bit where you mention uh, that most groups are like six-year-old boys, you know, at school. There's a leader, a scapegoat, a bully, a joker, and a pleaser. Mm. That's an amazing uh, analysis, I thought. I mean, is that something you can apply to most groups, do you think? I think so, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I haven't been in many bands, but <clears throat> um, that's what I imagine but that's it the to natural be. position that people will seek to occupy. It'll be one of those. Psychologically, yeah, and it's not a bad thing. You have to have those ingredients to make a band work, to have it make it fizz. I mean, if you're all very studied and you didn't have you, you didn't have that, I think it might be a bit bore, boring. You need to be able to wind each other up from time to time. So there's got to be that tension in there for, for it to be creative. I think it's healthy to have some tension, yeah, but it has to be understood. But when you're younger... It's difficult to understand because you don't have the intelligence to know what that is. At least I didn't. Right, right. I think we've got a picture here of the early, the early squeeze. Yeah. Where's that? Where's that taken? <clears throat> it's taken. Um, there's a foot tunnel that goes under right. Greenwich from Greenwich to the Isle of Dogs, and uh, there we are. There's me with a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> the very early days, and um, yeah. Nice bit of flares going on. A lot of flares. Jules Holland wearing flares. You yeah. talk about him as being uh, like a, a ringmaster in a circus, mm. which I thought was interesting because that's clearly the, the, the path he's taken in life, isn't it? And also there's an, another marvellous bit where you, you, after gigs, that you, you would pretend that he was a blind pianist. You'd go to pubs and he would play the piano, pretend to be blind. And you'd go around collecting money. Is that yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Most, mostly on tour. When we're in the States, we did, we did that because... There's lots of pianos in, in bars over there, and we just walk in, and he put dark glasses on, and then pretend to be, you know, and then we sit him at the piano and go, "Poor Jules, you know, he has, he's never seen the light of day, but he can play the piano, piano, piano." But once when we're in New Orleans, uh, he played the piano, pretending to be blind, and then James Booker got up, who is blind. Oh, good grief! Oh no! And can play extraordinarily well. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, oh my god. <laughs> So, I mean, can you, when you meet those guys now, today, do you still drop back into the roles that you had when you were 19 or 20 or whenever you joined? I think Jules and I definitely do. Yeah, I've just done some dates with Jules just recently and uh, we reduce ourselves to sort of 18-year-olds within about 20 minutes. You know, we're doing this and, you know, being really silly. (laughs) So... um, Oh, this is the day I think you signed your management deal. That's Miles Copeland at the back, brother of Stuart Copeland, of, of, of then Curved Air and Future the, the Police. Mm. And it's just interesting that you're so honest about what a terribly bad deal you signed, you know, that you, you signed away vast amounts of royalties and, uh, and yet re-signed with them later on, didn't you? How daft is that, eh? Yeah, I mean, what, what, what possessed you to do that? Just because... What, to re-sign? Well, first of all, to sign and then to re-sign. Yeah. Well, you know, an American manager comes to a studio in Greenwich. He walks in, he says, you guys sound like the Beatles, you're going to be massive. And you go, oh, great. You know. And he goes, how would you like to earn 15 quid a week? And we all go, yeah, that sounds great too. <laughs> 
And then he walks in with a big contract, like three contracts, publishing, you know, a record and touring or whatever it was. And he said, well, why don't you, if you sign these, I'll give you 15 quid a week. So, so he said, but show them to your dad to make sure he's, he'll be all right with you signing them. Because half of us were un, underage. So I showed it to my dad. He goes, oh, 15 quid a week? Yeah, it seems all right. <laughs> Consequently, we signed away our publishing until 1992, I think. Somebody will know more about that sitting in the audience. And um, we signed away 50% of it. So Glenn and I get 25% each from every uh, song that was written, like Call for Cats Up the Junction, right up until that period. Um, and uh, the, rest go, the rest goes, the 50% goes to... Um, uh, a bank, I think, because Miles sold it. Which is why you actually le- later on re-recorded all the songs. Didn't you? We, yeah, that was Glenn's genius idea yeah. to re-record them. However, no one's covered them, so. no. <laughs> but it was wor- it was worth the effort, I think. You know? Yeah, yeah. But you can still. I mean, do you still have cordial relations with Miles Copeland? None whatsoever. Um, <laughs> he. Uh, Fittingly manages a, a belly dance troupe, and uh, he, and that's what he does. And when the police got back together, this is a fascinating fact. When the police got back together, of course, he managed the police up to a certain point too, and then Sting got whiff of the same thing as we got and got rid of him. Um, but when the police got back together, how many years ago was that? Ten years ago, maybe they went on the road. Yeah. So Miles went on the road with a maker soundalike police with the original merchandise that the police had that couldn't, they couldn't sell but was in a lock-up in, oh, in near no. his house. So the police would be playing in a Normo dome in Boston and then Miles' makeshift police band would be playing in the Ratskeller in Boston, a tiny little club, but with the original merch. So you can see the guy that we signed to was... Above board, let's say. Thoroughly trustworthy. <laughs> yes, yeah, but, yeah. you know, that's just, that's just life. But uh, you were just so desperately keen to you know, make a record and 15 quid a week and go on tour and so forth. You would... Yeah, why not? I mean, a- ambition is everything when you're, when you're young. And, you know, it wasn't even the 15 quid. It was just like, OK, let's make a record. You know, let's go on the road. And he managed lots of different bands, bands that really weren't up our alley at all, like Renaissance Curved Air... Caravan and put you on tour with them. and put us on tour yeah. with them and their audiences would, would, would see us come on stage and just go what the hell is this you know five young blokes jumping about playing three minute pop songs they wanted old people playing songs for twenty minutes can you still remember all those kind of key stages early on you know that that when you first heard a rec- your record on the radio and so forth and mm, when, very much so you're right yeah where were you when you first heard it <clears throat> I was at Maxine's house and uh, a friend of ours Mark Smith. Um, was a bit of a boffin and uh, he he built a transmitter and he went on to the other side of Blackheath and he transmitted Take Me I'm Yours across Blackheath <laughs> to a radio that we had tuned in to the transmitter. <laughs> oh, brilliant! So it wasn't even on Radio 1. <laughs> but about three people thought it was. Three people yeah. thought it was. And he, he then went off to work on uh, um, Caroline, Radio Caroline. But the first time I remember hearing it was on the John, John Peel show when he played Packet of Three, which is 40 years old this month. And um, I've still I've got a cassette of him playing that, and it was just amazing, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did it all happen very quickly in the book? I mean, well, in real, in real, real life, you know. I mean, suddenly mm. the hits came, you're on top of the pops, you're getting recognition. It's brilliantly described. But you finish up playing um, Lou Reed's birthday party. In our first trip to New oh, your York. Your first trip to New York. How did that happen? That's an extraordinary thing to happen. Uh, well, John Cale produced our first album, and I think he logged us into the Andy Warhol scene when we arrived there. But they weren't interested in us. We played on a stage this side, and they were all in the corner, sort of with diva and people fancy dressed, and you know they couldn't be they couldn't be fussed, really, really. So we were playing to our ourselves, really. But I, I've met Lou, I met Lou Reed after it some years. I said, "Did you?" He, did, he didn't remember it at all. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's a brilliant moment when you're in you're in the, a room with the, with the, the Ramones, I think, and Television and Blondie. And yeah. you, again, like you talk about the internal dynamic of bands, it's fascinating. You say that musicians don't talk to each other. No, no, nobody 
wants to be the one to start the conversation. They want to be the cool one who has to have the other group come to them, you know. Well, that's right. When we first went on Top of the Pops, I was really excited about meeting our contemporaries. I was like, yeah, we're going to be in all these dressing rooms full of all these stars and we're going to hang out and high-five and swap ideas. (laughs) And nobody would come out of their rooms. (laughs) You know, so, you know, me and Jules, uh, we went into Duran Duran's dressing room and try and make friends with them and uh, they were very cold fish I have to say (laughs) and uh, they were leaving to go on stage and Jules said to Simon Le Bon hey your collar's sticking up mate (laughs) (laughs) and and he turned around to Jules and he said that's fashion you wouldn't know anything about it (laughs) brilliant Did you suffer many of uh, the efforts of stylists to make you, you know, kind of look... Stylists? Well, did you? you must have done. Did you? No? Did they try to polish up your visual image? Mm, I guess when MTV took off, there was a few fair uh, people with suits coming to give us a go, but, um, you know, we didn't really want to get polished up. We were very individual. I mean, we weren't quite... Um, village people <laughs> although having said that our first photo shoot uh, Jules got dressed as an egg and I got dressed as a vic- vicar and Glenn was a hen <laughs> so you know Miles was pulling his hair out trying to get us into some kind of look yeah yeah, yeah. it didn't work <laughs> never worked right right the right hen look yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so um, these, these, are, these are all cases of groups that supported you am I right in this, saying this yeah, if you supported Squeeze back in the day, you went on to do great things. <laughs> and it was ever so annoying to have, you know, like Paul Weller come and support you with the jam at the marquee, and then the next week he's number one. And you haven't even dribbled into the top 20. You know, it was hard, it was hard work. So can you remember these? Because you 2 supported you, Dash Trait supported you, REM supported you. Can you remember any, any particular XTC supported you? I think? <laughs> Can you remember any of those? Did you give them a sound check? <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I remember Bono saying that he had his band called U2, and I said it was, that was a stupid name because there was four of them. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst one, the worst one was I lived in a council estate in Deptford, and I lived on, in a place called Conger's House, and below me... Every day, all day, there was a guitarist who would, like, rehearse, which I never do. And he'd just, like, rehearse all day long, and it would just drive me bloody nuts. It was like knitting needles going on the whole time. And then he came up to my flat, and he said, oh, I see you're playing the Albany in a couple of weeks' time. And he said, uh, can my band support? I said, yeah, OK, uh, what's the name of your band? And he said, Dire Straits. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs> So I said, that's a shit name for a band. This <laughs> <laughs> is obviously, obviously your response to anybody's <laughs> band name, you know. Yeah. They supported us, and of course, the following year, they were playing Wembley Three Nights, and, but I'm still friends with them. Could you laugh at things like that? Well, at I the just time? did. <laughs> no. but, but at the time, did that rankle? I don't think it did, because I was just blind to all of that stuff. You know, it was just funny, really, I suppose. Yeah, particularly bands like R.E.M., who, who I loved, you know, and, and uh, they were supporting us, and I was at the side of the stage, and I just thought, they're going to go nowhere. <laughs> the songs are rubbish. The guy's playing a mandolin, for Christ's sake. <laughs> you, you've obviously got the, the ability to, to identify talent. on Because in the bit where you... Did you see Sting's audition or something? Who was that? I was at Sting's audition. You were Sting's audition? <laughs> I know. And what happened there? <laughs> so he did an audition for the police, which was a made-up band, you know, and then Miles came to me afterwards. He goes, hey, Chris, what do you, what do you think of him? I said, he can't sing for a tough <laughs> <laughs> And he's wearing a boiler suit as well. He looks terrible. Yeah. And the girls won't like him. And the girls so. won't like him. <laughs> and he's hideous. <laughs> and he's hideous. <laughs> and he's skin. Yeah. But now look at him. He's, he makes loot albums and they sell millions. Yeah. You know. <laughs> made a mistake somewhere along the line. <laughs> when you had all the big hits, there's a bit in the book where you talk about 
feeling you've got to up your game because of the quality of the lyricists that you're up against. You're up against Elvis Costello, you're up against Dick Lowe, mm. uh, Ian Dury. Mm. So did you, when you heard those, did you think of that as competition? Did you, did you hear their records? Did you hear a, 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 an Ian Dury record and a Blockhead's record and think, I, 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 is there anything I can learn from that? Yeah, you got, I just had to up my game the whole time and that was a beautiful time for music. music for me. Lyrics were so, so important. And when Elvis Costello produced the East Side Story album, you know, I would go into work every day and just dribble because I had to kind of make him, you know, see that my lyrics were good too. And, uh, you know, we formed a fantastic relationship doing, doing that. And I think the art of good songwriting is, to, is for you to spar with the person you're writing with. So even now when I'm working with Glenn, I have him in the middle, middle of my head when I sit down to write lyrics and I'm trying to impress him. You know, with all the internal lights and dry ice and all that stuff going on. Doesn't work, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it does. This relationship with Glenn, there's so much about it, and it's abs- it becomes more and more fascinating, you know. There are whole periods where you just don't talk to each other. I mean, gen- whole years go by when you're not talking to each other. Mm. And there was a moment where you start writing lyrics for him again, and his girlfriend says, you've got to send them to me. Is it a girl called Pam? I can't remember. Mm. You've got to send them to me. And she was then going to kind of edit them before she sent them on. To- this is like something like a spinal tap, you know. The yeah. same girl, in fact, who made you dress up in, um, you know, in strange costumes for videos. So it is very like Spinal Tap. Well, it was just a weird time. You know, we were very... T- we'd come to the end of Squeeze. We put Squeeze to bed, and we were all very tired from five or six years of constantly making records and touring the whole time. And I don't really think uh, we had the ability to communicate properly how we both felt. So we, be- we went off on diff- in different directions together, if that makes sense. Um, and then when we came back together to write the Difford and Tilbrook album, I don't think we had a conversation for the whole making of the record. And Tony Visconti, who produced it, was miffed because he thought he was producing the new John, uh, the new Lennon McCartney album. And uh, there we were trying to avoid each other. And I, I'm, you know, I'm sad about that. Really, I'm sad about my part in it that I didn't have the ability to break out of the dark, the dark corner, and to be able to embrace what was going on because it was brilliant it is a brilliant record so yeah those were those were strange uh, times when was the time <coughs> when was the point when you realized that your father's prediction had come true <coughs> mm. uh, when i was skin and i was an alcoholic and i was a drug addict and i and i was in rehab for the first time and you know i was sitting there <coughs> i was sitting there in in a my first group uh, with a lot of people who were in there for different reasons the people I didn't really have seemed to have a lot in common with but yeah I did and um, I wasn't allowed any contact with the outside world yet Squeeze were on tour they were in America in America and very graciously uh, supported me um, and I remember that first week very vivid, vividly because Maxine died during that first week. She was the woman that brought me and Glenn together, of course. And also it was the first time, you know, when I'd not had a drink for 18, 19 years, so it was a little bit odd, you know. There I was trying to come to terms. And for the first time I could read my watch in many years without my hand going like this. It was kind of bizarre. And did you fill that addiction, that kind of vacuum, with... with, um Addiction to other things. It seems like you did. You were buying gadgets all the time. You were buying cars. I mean, was that was that compulsively buying cars? Really? Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, was my... that a substitute for the, the booze and drugs? Well, yeah. Well, yeah. After I'd had some time, some clear air, some pink air, if you like, uh, I did sort of delve into spending, and uh, you know, I'd just go, I thought, I'll go on Concord. You know, sounds like fun. Just get on a plane, like three grand down the drain, and. You know, just be me on the plane. There'd be nobody else, just me. You know, it was brilliant. Um, and then um, I just would buy probably three or four cars every every year, but I'd go and test drive all the best ones, like, uh, you know, Ferrari, Fer- Ferraris and stuff like that. I did buy uh, one, and I drove it for about six miles, and the dashboard fell off. And it was like God was telling me, you've made a mistake here. <laughs> 
you know, and I called them up and I said, look, I've, I'm only six miles away from the garage and the dashboard's fallen off. And they went and give, gave me another one in replacement for that. So they fed my thing. So who, who was looking after your money at this time? Was anybody apart from you? I mean, is anybody standing alongside you going, I think you might have gone a bit far here with the car and so forth? Uh, my brother was my accountant. Oh, right. And he tried very hard to... Uh, in fact, he would call all the garages in London and say, if a Chris Difford comes in, he's, uh, he's just been let out of a mental institution. <laughs> and no actually, account sell him a car. No account sell him a yeah. car because he doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, it seemed to work because I went into the Bristol garage one afternoon, a £150,000 car, and I said, can I test drive that car? And of course, then he had they hand build these things. And the guy said, uh, "What's your name?" I said, uh, "Chris Chris Difford." He said, uh, "Oh, mm. um, well, we've had a phone call from your accountant. No. <laughs> Claims you haven't got a pot to piss in." <laughs> but you, you had times during this period of time when you were very quite wealthy, and then times when you're less so. Is that fair? I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> but you talk about the highs and lows very, very entertainingly and very, very perceptively, very, very revealingly. You talk about one moment you're John Bon Jovi and the next moment you're Eric Sykes. Mm. The idea you've gone from these great heights to a kind of uh, yeah. something a little bit more uh, realistic. Prosaic, you know? yeah. And also, it's, it's just so honest. Is that something to do with therapy where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're encouraged to be completely transparent and to tell the truth? Because Dave and I, as I say, we kept texting each other and saying, this is absolutely astonishing, these revelations, you know. At one, well, point, when, at one point, when you were a kid, you talk about um, you and your gang um, mugging an old lady and nicking her purse, you know. And you think, mm. that's amazing that you put that in the book. I felt, felt yeah. rather admiring that you did, actually. Well, I was at the back. I didn't kick her or anything. No, no, no. <laughs> you just took the money. I just took the and money. Ran. And the polos. The and the back of polos right. in the purse. <laughs> uh, well, it... I think it, it's, the book's about me. It has to be an honest appraisal of where I've been so far, and I thought that was really important. Uh, there's a lot that came out of the book because the legal department thought I was being a little bit too honest. <laughs> a bit. Uh, but I've had a meeting this afternoon, and some of those things are going back in, in the paperback ed- edition. What was edition. Glenn's reaction to the book? That's my interest. Well, I, um, Glenn... You know, he's a very private man. I don't think he uh, particularly liked the fact that I'd written about him, but I had to write about him because he's been my life for 45 years. And I don't think I say anything out of turn, really. I love him to bits. And, you know, the whole arc of the journey, really, is about my um, ambition to be in a band and then discovering depression, alcoholism and all that along the way, but also buddying up with somebody who I go on this journey with the ups and downs of that. And here we are, you know, all these years later, we played Glastonbury two years back, and it was the most joyous gig where I don't think uh, any of the band, you know, could really feel the importance of that passing of time. It was just genuinely joyous. So, uh, you know, Glenn is central to my life in many, many ways. I love him to bits. And, um, you know, I'm sad for the, for, the, for the miscommunication that I may have caused over the years, but here we are in a much better time. So you're, that, that's Squeeze playing Madison Square Garden in whenever that was. That was kind of... Mm. Well, were, were you're, you, you, you're saying you enjoyed Glastonbury two years ago, more than that, probably. I don't remember that. You don't remember that at all? No, I was off my tits at the time. And I asked my good friend, Chalky Davis, to take some pictures of that gig so I could remem- remember it, and he just took pictures of our feet. <laughs> <laughs> Why? God knows, but, I mean, they're great pictures, but, I mean, this is the only picture I, uh, that there is which uh, exists, as far as I know. So you literally don't remember it? I don't. I was in a really bad place. You know, I was kind of out, coked up and not very friendly and I was kind of swanning around in limos, limos, limousines and going to clubs and stuff. And it was brilliant. I really loved it, loved it. It wasn't like I was sad doing it. It was like, wow, this is great, you know, and hanging out with uh, John Bon Jovi, John Jovi and people like, like that, you know. So it's too obvious a question. If you're in that kind of a state, how can you perform? 
easily, really. It's all bluff. It's oh. all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Yeah, the amp was turned down as well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> My amp's always been turned down. This is another... Uh, so, so I've got to ask you, just before we go on to, the, to Brian Ferry, who plays a Uh-oh. wonderful part in this... It's the department. legal department in it. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> when people ask you the, the question, you know, what, why do musicians do drugs and drink so much? What's your answer? Because they can. But I don't think it's as prevalent as it used to be. I don't know, because I'm 63, I'm not in a band of a youthful age. But uh, I don't think... You know, in those days, it was much more interesting to be like that, I think. And I, I don't question that part of my life. I think it's genuinely brilliant what I, what I did. What, I, what I'm sad about is missing it all, because I just sat in a hotel room with the curtains closed and ordering up room, room service, you know, and, and treating the ones closest to me the worst, which seemed to be like the weirdest thing to be uh, doing. But that's a disease. Mm-hmm. Happy days. Brian Ferry. There is a chapter in this, in this book about Brian Ferry, which, which just gave me such joy. Dave and I were constantly <laughs> texting each other about yes. this. We couldn't believe I, I the level it, of revelation. I Maybe it won't be in the finished book when it's the legal I, I think it should be filmed, that chapter, with Steve Coogan playing about yeah. Brian Ferry. Yeah. So, t- so tell, tell everybody how you came to be involved with Brian Ferry and how you were involved with him. Um, well, very good friend and mentor of mine, the late David Enthoven, he managed everybody from T-Rex to Roxy Music. And uh, he was an Etonian and uh, a wonderfully gentle man. And uh, I went to see him pissed one afternoon and I said, you know, what? I want to write lyrics for Brian Ferry. And he said, Chris, when you're sober, come back and ask me again. And when I was sober, I asked him again. And lo and behold, I got a job. And my job was lyric doctor. And I got paid to sit in his office and thumb through literally piles of notepads with just one line here and one line there that he'd written down and try and make sense of them and put them into an order that might become a song. Um... So create verses and choruses out, yeah, of, out of these Yeah, and Dave notes. Stewart was shipped in to produce the record, although we only saw him very briefly because he's such a busy man. Um, so my job was to then put the lyrics in front of Brian and David, Dave and try and impress them and, and, and see what, what hap- happened. But very quickly, uh, the focus was shifted from writing... Uh, finding lyrics to sharpening pencils. <laughs> and you had to have them all the same height? They had or something? to be the same yeah. height. Every pot of pencils in the bloody yeah. office had to be the same height. So I did that, and I thought, well, that's all right, you know, I'll just do that. <laughs> and then, and, and then, he, then, he, then he gave me a, a French uh, a, a rare film to watch, and he said, every time the woman screams, write down the number on the dashboard of the video machine so I'm going like half an hour through it I'm going didn't I used to be in squeeze <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are a bit where he's, he's writing lyrics down and he can't work out whether the word martini should have a capital M or a lowercase m yeah well that was a debate that went on for a week <laughs> is it any wonder that it's nine or ten years between albums then for Brian Ferry I mean... well he's a genius really I mean he takes great care over his image and every photograph has gone over with a fine tooth comb and you know uh, the second time I went to work with him was as, as his personal manager and I really loved that particular time it was testing but it was great and EMI called me up and they said uh, we need a greatest hits package to fill the gap because Brian hasn't re- you know, delivered a record so I sat with Brian and we put together a listing of how this, the album would be and then we came to the album sleeve and then we got the pictures out six months later we still hadn't decided what was going to be on the front and the art direct- director literally came to where I worked and said, you've got two days to decide, otherwise it's not going to come out. You know, I was just like pulling my hair out. But I have to say that it's totally the opposite of me, who when I get photographs for a squeeze album, I go, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's great that somebody cares in that way. You know, I think it's a wonderful thing. You talk about, you talk about that, you get an offer for the Roxy music to reform, don't you, to play a mm. one-off gig. 
Yeah, by the head of a massive bank. Um, um, and he was a young Canadian guy, and he phoned me up and he said, you know, I'm a big Roxy Music fan. Is there any possibility we can get them to reform for an hour's concert in a club in London? And I went, hmm, I don't think so. How much? <laughs> <coughs> and then the figure came in and I went, hmm, well, I'll make some phone calls. <laughs> So everybody got together, and uh, there was there were there were rehearsals, but Brian didn't go to the rehearsals. He didn't felt he didn't feel like he needed to, because he did all the songs anyway in his own set. So Roxy formed, and I, and uh, the record company said to me, and David said to me, "This is an excellent opportunity. Get them in a room and get them to talk about making a new Roxy album." So that was my goal. So I'm shitting myself for a week trying to figure out how to get them into a room, it's like herding cats. So I got them all in the dressing room, and it was like the first day of school for five-year-olds. They all stood in the corner of the room, <laughs> with some drinking. <laughs> nothing was said. Talk about squeeze. Yeah. I mean, they did, nothing was said. They went on, they did the gig, and that was it. Phil is the loveliest man yeah. on earth, though. He's just like, what a dream man. Yeah. I'd love to be in a band with him. <laughs> no, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic bit in the book. Chapter. It's extraordinary. You know, as a musician, to have that view of another musician, you mm. know, particularly somebody so, you know, well-known as, as that. Um, you've also... You did, this is the, 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 my favourite Hancock cover, The Last yeah. Temptation of Chris, one of your, one of your solo albums. But the, another string to your bow is your songwriting retreats, mm. which you started quite a long time ago, didn't yeah. you? 25 years ago. All oh, right. Yeah. <clears throat> They're now sponsored by the Bud, Bud Buddy Holly Foundation, and we run them in this beautiful house in Somerset, near Glastonbury. And uh, writers come from all over the world, mainly from Nashville, um, and... Uh, we sit and write songs every day and it's a joyous thing and we perform them at the end of the day and um, it's just, uh, you know, it's a lovely thing I don't actually write, I don't, part- I don't have the headspace to write during those weeks I just, part- I just facil- facilitate Right But I've just heard this week that uh, the Buddy Holly Foundation are building um, a-, a building in Lubbock, Texas in memory of Buddy and they're going to have uh, an educational department there. And there's going to be a Chris Difford um, um, uh, degree, if you like. Very good. Yeah. You can be a visiting professor. I could be, yeah. If I, I could. think you should get your name down. Yeah, I'll, have to, I'll just have to get a funny hat, won't I? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, you went, you went to school with Danny Baker, is that right? Well, he was below me in school, but yes, he was there. And we and if you read his book, you'll get a much better encounter of what school was like because he he wrote his book before I did, so I left that chapter out. Right, right, right. Mm. But we we shared the same experiences, like uh, being taken home by our art teacher, Gail. Um, she she it was the strangest thing. I mean, she took me back to her flat in Deptford and played me the first Fleet Fleetwood Mac. This is the same teacher. Yeah, same who's teacher. Tried to seduce Danny and me. This is brilliant. Yeah, and so she she'd sit down, she put some sausage rolls on the table like that, you know, and she put Fleetwood Mac on, or and then she'd go, "So, Christopher, yeah, what do you think about Picasso? You know," and you go. Uh, there's a bus in ten minutes. <laughs> <laughs> My mum's waiting for me to go home, uh, and, then, and then she said to me, "No, no, stop! Uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to make you a pl- a ploughman's." And I didn't know what a ploughman's was in this those days. It's exactly like Danny's story. It's yeah. identical. And I thought a ploughman's it must be some kind of sexual reference. You know? Yeah. And then she walks in with an apple and a bit of cheese, and I'm going, "Fucking hell!" <laughs> <laughs> What am I going to do with these? <laughs> <laughs> you thought this was sexual apparatus? I thought it was sexual yeah. apparatus, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And legged it out the door. But, of course, next day in school, everything was back to normal. No one said anything. Oh, that's brilliant. Mm. But you, you, did the, you did the music for Danny's TV yes. adaptation of his book. Yes. It kind of brings you full circle, doesn't it, really? Because it yeah. goes back at the same time. Cradle to the Grave, yeah. They came, him uh, and Jeff Pope, who um, made the film, came to Glenn's studio and we went through the scripts. 
And after 15 years of not making an album, this gave Squeeze the ability to focus on a new record. And uh, it galvanized our minds and it brought us much closer together. We'd started to write songs almost in the same room. We were in two rooms with the door open. Um, and Glenn participated lyrically in that and at first I was kind of like hold on that's my that's my game but actually you know it was like oh come on you know so we started to share and I think those songs are some of the proudest moments that we've had since probably the East Side Story album and the new album uh, the, which we've just finished which is that which is this <coughs> um, it, it's even it's even more exciting than the Cradle album so I think you know, after all these years of 14 albums, it's still extraordinary that we can turn up trumps. And uh, I have to say, you know, Glenn's got his own place where he makes rec- rec- records, and, um, you know, his focus and his ability to tune everything perfectly is, is something that I don't have as a gift, but he does. And I totally respect that. I think it's an amazing, amazing gift. So you're going on tour? A squeeze? Yeah, we are starting rehearsals next week. I've seen the set list. It's massive. Um, and uh, there's lots of chords in there, so I'll be <laughs> rehearsing. Um, so we go on to... Then we go to America. Then I'm not really sure. I think uh, Glenn, Glenn Fancy's taking a rest, which I think is probably the right thing. And uh, I want to go on and write another book. Really? Mm. What's the other one? next one going to be about? It's a short story thing. Uh, and each each short story is based around one of our songs. So up the junction will be uh, twenty thousand words. So it'll be the st- it'll, what I'm thinking anyway at the moment is it takes the last verse as the beginning of the short sto- story and then it goes off. Label would love same thing. That's a terrific idea. Yeah, That's a good idea. Really? Mm. Well, look, you made a terrific start in your book writing career. Thank you. This is, a, this is an extraordinary read, which I cannot recommend too highly. Thank you. Some fantastic place. Please welcome Chris Difford. Thank you. Who will be signing copies of this book over at the table outside the door. Martin's table out there, yeah. just outside the door on your left. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hey.